Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Latham, who is a molecular biologist and a virologist, which is a great skill set to help us understand how this virus that caused this national shutdown of, and put us in our homes and shut down the economy, you know, what, how did it happen? What, what was the origin of it? And we know what the conventional viewpoint is, but I think, but Dr. Latham has some really intriguing uh, evidence to review to suggest where exactly where this came from. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hi there, Joe. I'm doing great. Couldn't doing good. Getting really strong. Uh, no traveling, so I've got a lot of time to commit to healthy behaviors. So, on you know, which is interesting because I've read a few uh, studies that show the average American that is confined to their house is like gained five percent of their body weight eating junk food. So uh, you can go both ways, either way rather. You you can choose the pernicious, deadly food or choose food to get you healthy and engage in healthy behavior and actually come out of this thing stronger, which would I, which is what I chose to do. So now you have an interesting history. We've interviewed you about four years ago for your work in virology uh, as it relates to GMO. And, and uh, actually you had an academic position, I believe, over in the UK somewhere. And then uh, because of your strong opposition to GMOs, uh, I believe you had to leave and you went to the United States where you are in Ithaca, New York now uh, and serve as the editor of the uh, Independent Science News. Yeah, so maybe you can I, elaborate I, on that, your journey. Yeah, yeah we, can, we can talk a little bit. I mean, I didn't have to leave, but I oh, did cool. choose to. You know, it became obvious that, uh, you know, science was very much interfered with by commercial interests and that if you wanted to do something that was in the public interest, that was going to be really hard, right? So I did, I did actually did a PhD in England. The virology was in England. And then, and I could see that, uh, you know, commercial interests were dominating the outcomes. And then I moved to the U.S. and I was at the University of Wisconsin and I was doing uh, medical research there. And I could see the same thing. Like, you know, we'd write on our grant proposals, that we're doing this in the public interest, but really we didn't believe the first line of our grant proposals. You know, I can see that that, that was not, it was just there to, to uh, you know, just provide the basis for the justification for what we really wanted to do, which was play around in the lab and maybe, you know, for some people were thinking about patents and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a it's a, bit of a challenge and uh, especially in the, uh, with the uh, uh, reality is that we need competent scientists to evaluate the truth and help us navigate uh, 
these realities that we're, we're confronted with. And uh, so we need solid scientists to do that. And when they're conflicted with commercial conflicts of interest, it's, it's a challenge. And you almost can't believe them. Well, it's, it's very difficult to be an honest scientist these days. It's really, really hard. In yeah. Yeah. So that leads us into what we're going to discuss, the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, uh, which has uh, mutated from the bats. Uh, at least that's the conventional media uh, uh, story uh, and it's zoonotically transmitted. However, uh, there's another way to look at this and there's quite a bit of evidence coming out of this. And the reason I mentioned it's a good segue is because uh, one of the primary researchers uh, out of China at the Wuhan Virology Institute was uh, uh, Xi, Xi Zengli, I believe. And uh, she was responsible for a lot of the papers as, as uh, doing the initial research on this and, and uses a resource uh, to, uh, I guess, support the hypothesis and the thesis that this, this was zoonotically transmitted. So it's a story that she certainly uh, commits to, as do many other researchers who've been publishing on this for the last 10 years. So why don't you walk us through your understanding of what happened? Because it's really a beyond fascinating story. And when you put all the pieces together in an article that you recently wrote, which is certainly linked to, it makes perfect sense. And it's a pretty easy to read article. It's not complex. There are some previous articles on the origin that literally take an hour or two hours to read and go in deep into science. But yours really provides the framework of how to understand precisely what happened. Yeah. I mean, we didn't go too deep into the science because I don't think it's strictly necessary. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there are, because we don't know what the starting point was. Like we, we our article doesn't dispute that it came from a bat at some mm -hmm. point. I think that is the strongest data. But what we do dispute is the mechanism by which it came from the bat. So in our view, there are several different types of lab origin hypothesis, right? There is the simple one, the real simple one, is that these uh, researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology or another virology BSL-2 lab that's down the road were basically going out to remote or remote-ish areas and collecting samples of bat swabs, bat poo, uh, and, and the blood samples from bats. And they were then bringing them back to their lab. And that the simple, the very simplest possibility is that one of them becomes infected in the process of doing that sampling. And we know that uh, sometimes they didn't wear uh, good protective gear. Where there are stories about them being, you know, crapped on by bats, peed on by bats, and so forth. And we know that they didn't always use the precautions. And there are the people warning us about the possibility of catching viruses from bats. And that they came, one of them came home, got a bat infection, and and then pass it on to one of their co-workers or to their family because they didn't quarantine properly or didn't even know that they were infected, for example. So, so that is a simple hypothesis. Another but, but before, before we go to that one, let's just expand on that a bit because the, the, the challenge from my perspective with that hypothesis is that as far as we know, the bat coronavirus does not have any affinity for ACE2 receptors, which is the really one of the reasons why this was... Yeah this virus was so devastating. Yeah, 
I, I don't think it's the most likely of the hypothesis, but I think we should put it out there as being a possibility. And that, you know, the, the, in that scenario, the virus would have to circulate among a bunch of people in order for the spike protein to evolve, to be suited to people, possibly unknown to them with maybe limited symptoms or be very transmissible in some way. You know, so I, I understand your point and your point is good that it, it doesn't automatically explain everything and we still don't know what the starting virus was either, right? So that's one, but that's one possibility. Uh, the other one is that they brought a similar virus back with them and they didn't really do a lot of molecular biology or recombinant biology on it, but they were just, you know, cloning it in the lab. They were trying to make an infectious clone. They were putting it into cells, maybe into monkey cells, maybe into humanized mice, maybe into, uh, into human cells with an H2 receptor expressed in them. And then that virus, which they didn't deliberately alter, then jumped into one of the researchers. So for example, you know, there have been lab escapes of viruses in which people fail to decontaminate samples and then they give the samples to someone else or they throw them out with the trash or, or, uh, or you know, some mishap arises. And so, so the virus is, you know, either identical to the one that was collected from the wild or very little altered by the lab, but then it escapes because there's some failure in the lab. So that would be a second possibility. The third possibility is that they were collecting samples. We know they collected thousands of samples and hundred, many hundreds of bat sequences. And that they were looking for ones that they wanted to alter and with, with interesting properties, right? They would get them good publications, scientific interesting publications. And so they found some with interesting spikes that maybe they could show bound to the ACE2 receptor and they took those and they put them into a, into either mix them with another sample that they had or something that they already, uh, you know, were working on in some other way. And that through those recombination events, maybe they knew, you know, they wanted to see what happens when you add a furin site. But then also you, the, the other, you know, you've got people mixing and matching viruses and the whole remit of the lab, right? You have to understand is to show that viruses uh, potential pandemic pathogens, right? Or, trip, or triple P, PPP. Yeah, people, people do call them PPPs. And, and the remit of the lab, and you can see this on the grant proposals that they've written, they say, you know, our thesis is that these viruses that we're collecting from the wild are potentially going to cause pandemics. And therefore, our task is to see how many steps there are between them and a potential pandemic. And so, we, for example, we will swap spike proteins and see if the viruses that we have, you know, circulating in bats, really all they need to do is evolve a better spike protein and all of a sudden they can become pandemic pathogens. So you have to understand that's the motivation of the research, right? And then the specifics are that they're swapping pieces of viruses that they're collecting novel viruses that we may not have seen before or may have been unpublished, and that one of these turns out to be a very strongly active virus. 
Okay, can, 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 I, can I stop you there for a moment? I'm just curious, and you'd be a, an excellent person to ask because of your experience in molecular biology and virology. Uh, how do they recombine this? What's the recombinant process? Because I, 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 my suspicion is most of this work was done prior to the advent of CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah. So what was the process that they employed? Yeah, I mean, there's a simple cutting and paint. You know, the standard thing historically was you find a restriction site in your two different viruses or you, or you may manufacture a restriction site. So that gives you a cutting place in the genome. And then you take that, you know, you use, a, you cut a segment out of one virus and then you cut an equivalent section out of another virus and then you put that back in again to the, to the let's see, you, say you start with virus A and you cut a bit out and you put that into virus B, but of course you've got to remove the bit from virus B that, that, that it already has. So you're, you're basically swapping things and you're using restriction enzymes, which are basically enzymes that cut DNA in specific places. So that's kind of the old fashioned way. And then there, there are newer methods with PCR and so forth that are slightly more complicated. It means you're not restricted to the to restriction sites to do that. But, okay. but basically, you know, there's very simple cutting and pasting but it doesn't necessarily leave a scar or a mark or, or whatever. This is the really important point here. Okay, good. Thank you. The final, the final thing is that there's also passaging experiments, right? So passaging experiments are when you take a virus. Say, for example, you take a virus that originally came from a bat and you put that into monkey cells or you put that into human cells or you put that into mice cells what you normally observe with that virus is that uh, it doesn't work too well in those cells because it's not adapted to them, right? It's a bat virus, so it doesn't work too well. But if what, you, what virologists have learned to do is to uh, essentially, when, when, as, the bat, as, as the viral infection is failing, you take a little sample of what is inside the cell and you put it into another cell and then when that infection builds up, but then the, basically the cell, the original cell starts to kill it off, but you take another sample, right? And this is called passaging. And what it does is it allows a virus to evolve into a more pathogenic form against the cells that you're now putting into. So you're always putting into the same species of cell, or you can also do this with whole organisms. So there's a famous experiment where a researcher uh, put an influenza virus into ferrets, and this is the, a virus from birds, and they put it into the ferrets, and they basically stuck it in their nose so that they wouldn't, uh, so that they wouldn't fail to catch it. But this virus doesn't really affect the whole animal, but it will exist in a few nas nasal cells for a, for a short amount of time. But while it's existing there, it's under severe selection pressure, and so it's evolving to be more suitable to this ferret. And then they basically stick swabs into the nose of the ferret, collect as much virus as they can, and then they do the same thing into the next ferret. And after 10 generations, they had evolved a virus that was actively infectious to the whole ferret and could infect a ferret in the next door cage, right? So that's called passaging. And so what, what, what's interesting about those kinds of experiments is that if you, is that the research lab themselves Unless they go and sequence the new virus that they have caused to evolve, 
they don't know what it looks like, right? It may have recombined, it may have mutated, it's something about it has changed, right? There's been a genetic change, but you don't know what it is until you go and research it and clone it and make a new infectious clone. And so you have uh, the possibility that what escaped from the lab is actually not properly known to the people in the lab. They don't actually know what it was that they evolved. And if they were doing those kinds of experiments, uh, you know, putting, putting live bat viruses into, into cells of different species, and historically we know that they were doing those kinds of experiments, then they could also develop a new virus. And you can have a combination of those experiments. So you can have researchers who passage recombined molecules. So they did the cutting and pasting part, and then they put that cut and pasted virus into novel cells like human cells, and then they passage that and then you evolve an infectious clone that way. Yeah, and, and in your article, I think you mentioned that in 2017, literally three years ago, uh, she, uh, I believe it was she, she that did this, Zengli, mm -hmm. that uh, infected uh, HeLa cells yeah. with, with the coronavirus or the... And what's you know, them? Yeah. yeah, and then what? But these HeLa cells had the ability to express the ACE2 receptor, and then they passaged them in the monkey cells. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and when you do this iteratively over time, you can create a pretty potent pathogen. And is, your, is it your speculation that this is the, the entity that likely leaked from the lab, if that theory is true? Well, it, it, it explains how, for example, you can end up with a virus that has a very high uh, affinity for human receptors, right? That kind of experiment. Because, because we still have to explain how a virus came from a bat which, with presumably low affinity for human ACE2 receptors and then wound up being, being able to infect large numbers of people in a short space of time, right? And we know that SARS-CoV-2 has very high affinity for human receptors. You know, that was a feature of the early research on the virus. Like, wow, this thing has really high affinity the human receptors, well, how could it have come by that? And one of the obvious answers to that question is that it was being passaged inside these human cells or that somebody cut and pasted uh, a, a, a spike protein that bound to these human receptors that they already knew worked particularly well. So yeah, so our hypothesis is that either they were cutting and pasting or they were passaging or they were doing some combination of both and then that basically led to somebody in the lab becoming infected through some kind of careless event. So, and so that would, that needs to be combined with some leak from the lab. And I'd like to explore yeah. that because you uh, described some fascinating history that most people are unaware of. I believe the H1N1 virus is, is now extinct and that or at least was, and that was the one that caused the 1918 flu pandemic. But what most people don't know that in 1977, that there was a lab, a leak in a lab in either Russia or China, where it, it got out and infected large amount of, of people, in fact, caused a global pandemic and wasn't recently admitted being due to a lab leak. It wasn't admitted to until, until recently it was they, they accepted that responsibility. And then it's actually this one that uh, became uh, responsible for the, the subsequent uh, swine flu pandemic that we had. 
Yeah. Maybe you can go into that more detail as an example of what, of the, of the leak that can occur from a lab that has actually occurred previously. Yeah. Across pandemics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, you know, this is a real life example. So we think that the, there was a research lab in, in China or Russia that was basically unthawing a sample of H1N1 that had been in their freezer for 20 years since, since basically the virus went extinct. Because it's essentially what happened is that, you know, the virus goes extinct and then a new version of the virus appears in 1977. In, the, in, in, Russia, in China, it was first spotted. And it was identical to one that had existed 20 years before, but very, very close to being basically identical. One that had existed 20 years before, and no one could explain how a virus could appear, which it was basically identical, but had been somehow hidden. Like there was a theory that it had been in the permafrost and somebody had dug up a person from the permafrost and that who'd had died with H1N1 flu. But like that, that was the best theory that people had until they realized that it probably came from a, from a lab that was making a vaccine. And, the, so, and for example, the early cases of that H1N1 flu were temperature sensitive. They had a temperature sensitive virus. And the temperature sensitive virus is one of the things that you use when you're making vaccine, right? So, so they had, so it's basically a partially disabled virus. And so, so what, uh, you know, basically it's agreed. I mean, there are a few people who, who, who still are holdouts, but basically there is no other explanation than that this came from a lab and that there were labs who had stored stocks of it and so forth. But no, no lab has really come forward and say, you know, it was us. So this has been kind of deduced from sequence information and from the location in which it appeared and so forth. But it's widely accepted by virologists. But it's part of a, you know, what's really interesting is it's part of a whole battle because, because there is a whole history of possible lab releases and lab accidents of human viruses. And these are very contested events, right? Because essentially what you're saying here is that, that a virus has leaked out from a lab. It has killed people. It's caused a lot of people to become sick. And it may, might, may or may not have come from a virology lab. It sure looks like it quite likely did. And there's a section of the virology community that is very uncomfortable with that admission. So we have this whole story. For example, there's a story of HIV, that it came from, a, from polio vaccination. So this is a very contested thing. There's another, there's another story of a lab outbreak from a... Uh, from uh, well, there's one, there's one in Venezuela. They had equine encephalitis, which basically escaped, almost certainly escaped from a lab. There's also, um, there's a, we're, and caused human disease, right? Uh, and, and a pandemic. But there's also H1N1 swine flu, right? So there's a scientific paper by a friend of mine called Adrian Gibbs. And he, his, his paper basically was written with two other virologists. So he's a famous virologist. He says this came from a vaccine, right? That this is the swine flu is actually not readily accountable by the circulation of viruses that happen in, in you know, uh, North American and European and South American pigs at that time. Basically, you can't explain it by that method, but you can explain it perfectly well by the idea 
that there was a manufacturer who was making bits of H1N1 from European sequences and North American sequences and South American sequences and stuck them all together to make a universal vaccine and somehow they failed to inactivate it and so they gave it to pigs in Mexico. And that became the swine flu, the second H1N1 uh, pandemic, right? And that second pandemic uh, killed probably close to 300,000 people. So, so, so we have um, a whole series of examples of lab escapes of viruses. So when, you know, when people treat the lab escape thesis as being somehow ridiculous or a, or a um, outrageous hypothesis or vastly improbable, that, that to me, it just demonstrates their ignorance of the history of virology. Yeah, and along the lines, you referenced the HIV coming from a vaccine, and more specifically, there was a book that, that was devoted to this whole concept called The River, uh, A Journey Back to the Source of HIV and AIDS, that discusses how, uh, because it was believed, and still by many believed, that HIV came from some apes, probably some some. Uh, African eating bushmeat or Africa, uh, some chimpanzee or a monkey of some sort. And yeah. that's the way they got it. But th there's evidence that they actually did experimental polio vaccines in these monkeys that were co-contaminated with SIV, S simian immunodeficiency virus, which is a cousin to HIV. And then they cultured these cells to produce vaccines and that, be, they believe, seems to be a far more likely uh, hypothesis as to how HIV got into the population. You know, a similar nefarious strategy, again, related to vaccines. They're trying to help us, but they wind up make, causing more harm than good. Yeah, because, because these are people who are, you know, as I would argue, in denial of the, the dangerous possibilities of, yeah. of vaccines, right? Because, because you know, you're taking, I mean, what happened in Africa was, you know, 10 years before HIV broke out, there, was, there were mass vaccination programs in Africa of, of oral polio. And these were attenuated vaccines, but basically they're live cells that are extracts that are being injected into millions of people. And the, the, the geographic location of these outbreaks matches the early outbreaks of different varieties of AIDS, different strains of AIDS. And uh, there are four different species transmission events that are considered to have happened around that time. And, and each one of them is basically, you know, there have been no transmissions of simian immunoviruses in the two million years history of human, human <laughs> existence. And then none since 1960 or so, Right? And then there were four transmission events uh, during, straight after these oral polio vaccination campaigns, which were huge things. Like millions and millions of people were, were stuck with needles taken from cells extracted from wild. Basically, they were collecting wild monkeys, using their kidney cells and so forth, mm -hmm. and, then, and then using those to generate vaccines. Was that, was that a similar technique, that massaging that they used to uh, produce the, virus, the vaccine? Well, no, not, not to produce the vaccine necessarily, but, you know, there are, there's, there's another suggestion that people have made that they were basically using dirty needles, 
and they were really they weren't keeping good records of who they injected and so forth so like you know people just come in and, and join the queue again because they've heard it's good for them you know and so 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 there's you continuously you know using dirty needles and or re-injecting the same people uh with with new samples and taking blood from all ones so like you've got the perfect conditions right to create a a vaccine derived uh pathogenic event and and you may know the story also sv40 mm -hmm. right so this is the same millions of americans and and uh and many millions more probably around the world became infected with sv40 also as a result of a contamination event due to a vaccine that was again with polio yeah 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 so we you discussed the uh, precedent of a global pandemic with the H1N1 vex, uh, virus nearly 50 years ago, but more contemporary, we have the the new part of the equations with this with these biosafety labs. You know, they come from one through four, yeah. uh, and and the only BSL4 lab, interestingly, in China is in Wuhan. And if you look at the, the demographics of the, I mean, it's a big city, but it's certainly, China's a big country. And you wouldn't anticipate that Wuhan would be the epicenter of this epidemic based on their demographics. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah. even Zengli is just suggested it made no sense. So, you know, the, there's gotta be other variables that factor into the equation that, that result in them being the epicenter. And this could be one of them, having that lab there. So. You talk about the U.S. embassy officials visiting them in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2018 and identifying unbelievable breaches in the conduct that could lead to viruses, viral escapes. Why don't you discuss some of those? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, the U.S. embassy is claiming these things. I mean, I think they're important data points, but you know, these are kind of spooks and state departments and, and and this is, you know, a little bit of information that we haven't really seen all the relevant parts of. So we cite that, but we think it's more important that that people from within China have raised questions about the biosecurity of this lab. I mean, firstly, it's newly opened, mm -hmm. right? So that's automatically, you know, a little bit of a red flag. And then the second thing, it's the first one in the country. And secondly, there were violations cited by the internal kind of overseeing agency uh, in China uh, of the, the kind of standards that they would expect from a BSL-4 lab, right? So they've been trying to set up these certification systems and so forth for their, lab, for their labs. And because they're trying to set up a whole network, right? They want to set up a whole system of like you know animal experiments and lab and collection stations and so forth, but different kinds of labs and different kinds of viruses and different kinds of experiments. So, so this is a kind of test project. So they're setting up these certification schemes, and they've already been cited according to these reports for having these violations. So, and then we have a series of scientific papers that have been written that basically say could do better. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, it's difficult because these things are written in English by Chinese people who are involved in the system. And we're talking about an authoritarian communist country here. So could do better 
can be interpreted as, you know, the, the, as like, you know, the sternest warning they feel able to give, or it could simply be they think there are some marginal improvements around the edges that could be that could be made to these systems. So it's a little difficult to interpret that. But you, what, you know, the way that we see this is warnings from all different people, and we see, for example, evidence, you know, visual evidence, for example, of people not wearing the right outfits. And you know, security is a culture, right? Biosecurity is like, you know. We don't take off our gloves in the middle of doing something else, you know, like, you know, because you have to like develop procedures and habits so that you don't break them when something happens. And yeah. it doesn't well, seem that, that culture was in place. That, that's a good point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but most people listening to this don't really know what a BSL biosafety level four level lab is. There's only one in China. There's like three or four in yeah. the United States. So can you go in more details in the type of, extraordinary precautions that need to be uh, used regularly to prevent leak leak of the virus or, or whatever yeah. they're, they're playing yeah. with. I mean, what's, what's interesting, to me the most interesting part about this is, you know, the BSL-4 labs, you know, they can be designed technically to do all kinds of interesting things. Like they have different, you know, the lab is on one floor and they have a like a, sewage and sort of waste disposal system on the base and they have on the top they have like filters for like you know basically passing air because a lot of the security systems that people have are based on like positive pressure and different air pressures and, and whatnot and these these pressures are like uh to stop you from being exposed when you're because you're naturally handling these viruses you're only a foot and a half away from them using your hands and so you wear a special suit and the suit has a positive pressure and you've got all these kind of technical things in place. And so that is the main difference between that and a BSL-3 lab or a BSL-2 lab. So in, in the case of these BSL-2 and BSL-3 labs, you don't have all these necessarily like high-tech parts to it. It's more like if somebody's going to disinfect something, then it's because a, a, a technician is going to then come along at the end of the experiment and disinfect the plate that you've been using. So like those, those labs more rely on people's like self-discipline and, and careful personal behavior. But, but the BSL-4 labs, you know, they're really strong in all this sort of technical stuff, but they still are essentially plagued by uh, human error. Right, this huge biosafety and expense of making these very expensive labs with their positive pressure and their special disposal systems, they still don't get away from the fact that most spills in these biosafety labs can be attributed to human error. So it's like anything in life, especially in professional sports, you really have to pay attention to the fundamental basics. And if you violate or you're not engaging in these basics and there's a breakdown in them, the system's going to fail. Yeah. 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 That's basically right. <clears throat> so uh, now I guess. Let me, add, let me add something. One of those basics should be that, that you don't site these labs in the middle of a big city. Right. So we, you know, we already have what I would say are violations of the basics. You know, they should be in a desert somewhere. Right? They should be in a, 
they should be in a, you know, in the in, in Antarctica or something like that. You know, remote areas is where they should be. A potential solution for this would be to have the Chinese government cooperate and uh, offer the laboratory data and to review an outside agency to come and review it. But the likelihood of that of that happening is pretty remote. To, it will likely never happen because they're not transparent about it. But it really wouldn't be an expensive, expensive process. But if they can go in there and examine this, there, there would be the evidence to either prove or disprove that if, if those records weren't altered in some way. Yeah, I mean, in principle, these labs should have good lab notes, right? That, that is one of the, the principles of biosecurity is that other people know what you're doing, that you have a strong record of what happened, and it's clearly written down what, what your sample you're working on, what you did with it, and so forth. So, so, you know, a whole kind of principle of biosecurity is that. And, and another, you know, sort of related one is a, the transparency of the whole lab. Like, I don't think people should be doing these experiments if they're not prepared to accept other people coming and, and visiting labs and, and uh, auditing them in a sense. <laughs> That's great. So do you, uh, I, I've interviewed Francis Boyle before, and he's been involved with uh, the biowarfare uh, concerns for decades now. And it's his belief that they're the only purpose of these bio BSL three and four labs really is to engineer offensive biowarfare agents. And I'm wondering what your views are on. Do you think there is a legitimate uh, research purpose there, or is it just, a screen and a cover to essentially use these four offensive warfare agents? I, I don't think, I mean, there, there are countries that, that have been doing that kind of research for sure. I mean, the US being one of them, but the, you know, what's the main driver of all this, if you ask me, is what we think of as the um, pandemic virus industrial complex, right? So basically, you know, you have the Gates Foundation, right, which is pushing a model of public health, which is targeting diseases, like either future diseases or actually existing diseases like polio, and offering to eradicate these things as solutions to public health. Because the alternative approach to public health is very traditional. It's like everybody washes their hands, everybody is well nourished, everybody has a social network that they can rely on. We have competent nurses, we have competent doctors, where everybody has PPE, we have, uh, you know, maybe we have vaccinations, we have, you know, all these kinds of traditional uh, things available. But the problem with these traditional things is that there's no profit center there, right? It's just like you're just producing rubber gloves. You're producing, you know, special boots for doctors to wear to stop them from becoming contaminated or whatever it is. But you've got this kind of public health basics. And there's a fight going on between the people who want those public health basics and the Gates high-tech approach which is basically to do this pandemic surveillance, like basically go out to remote bat caves. And as you point out, they have to go a long way away to get bats, right? This is, this is one of the really interesting things is that 
you know, the, the, the proponents of a natural zoonotic spillover want to basically argue that something happened in Wuhan that caused someone to catch a virus, but there's, the, the wet market has now been ruled out as a likely source by the Chinese. And I think, you know, I obviously I'm not party to all the data, so I don't know, but they've said that. And, uh, and at the same time, you've got the centers of bats and the centers of coronaviruses are far from Wuhan. So, but the point of, you know, so that's an issue that the, the zoonotic people really need to explain and come up with a, with, a, with a theory for how that happened because at the moment they really don't have one. And so, so the tradition, the, the sort of new idea being promoted by Gates is that you focus on these viruses, you catch viruses from all kind of weird exotic species and then you come to a lab like the Wuhan lab and you build this very expensive technological uh, BSL-4 lab and you do these highly dangerous experiments to show that this virus and not that one could be the future pandemic and then we can you know foresee that we'll need a vaccine to this virus and not that one and so on and so forth but this is like there's a, there's this you know Gates always gets accused of spending all his money in the north when he spoke claims that he's helping the southern countries right and but basically these northern countries are basically corralling all this money out of Gates to do this kind of really high-tech research that is a substitute for genuine public health. So you've got this kind of fight going on, and these labs are at the center of that fight. Yes, indeed. And you know, the, the, the average person uh, has a perception of Gates as being this altruistic benefactor to humanity who's philanthropically oriented, when, and they fail to understand and recognize that the very uh, recommendation he's advising for benefits him significantly and he's highly conflicted they don't understand that since he started donating tens of billions of dollars his net worth is in doubled double because he's violating basic laws that he he's cleverly divided his research his his philanthropic foundation with a trust and the trust is heavily invested in the very industries that he's promoting so he absolutely gains enormously financially from the, these investments that he's making and his returns are, are extraordinary i mean he's not stupid he's i mean he didn't get to be one of the richest men in the world for for no good reason i mean he's he's clever that way so but he's he's twisted the whole discussion to have people believe that he's doing this out of the goodness of his heart when nothing from when you carefully evaluate the facts could be further from the truth yeah, I mean, he's really, you know, I mean, he, you have to see him as part and parcel of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and these, you know, the vaccine industry and, and all these other groups. Like, there's a really interesting thing happened the other day that the 77 Nobel laureates, most, most of them molecular biologists, right, write a letter to, to the president protesting the cutting of the grants to the Wuhan lab that were emanating from the NIH, right? Well, the guy who's leading this effort by the Nobel Prize winners, I don't know if you picked up on this, is a guy called Richard Roberts. And he's an English guy. He won a Nobel Prize for introns in like the 70s or something. He's now an older guy. But what is his scientific position? He is on the board of directors of New England Biolabs, which is like one of the biggest suppliers of molecular biology equipment. Right? 
So they're corralling together all these Nobel Prize winners to support all this molecular biology research that costs big bucks, right? There are hundreds of millions of dollars a year to, to, to do this kind of research, all of which is money that could be, could be going to PPE and so forth, right? But or even more basic things like vitamin D, you yeah, know, which exactly. builds yeah. up the immune system, you know, yeah. and prevents not only these diseases, but radically lowers the risk for cancer and heart disease. Yeah, yeah, there's good old-fashioned prevention, exactly. Yeah. So it's just extraordinary. So do you have any other thoughts on the absurd ludicrousness of trying to, of absolutely circumventing all safety standards in developing this new vaccine that they intend to launch in the fall? Uh, I don't know that they'll be able to do it, but that's their intention. Uh, I mean, so I'm sure you have some thoughts on it because most people I've discussed this with I mean, it just, it's, it's just almost incomprehensible to believe it's not going to be a, a, a nightmare in side effects and complications and deaths. Well, it takes time to test a vaccine, right? They're not testing. They're not testing. They're, <laughs> they're testing efficacy. They're not testing safety. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I really haven't looked into this. You know, my head has been very much down into like, you know, what is really happening in terms of the cause. It's kind of a full-time job. Yeah to try to work out because, you know, what, what we also plan to write about is there was a cover-up, right, of the, of the Wuhan lab. Oh, right? really? Can you go, yeah, on, can yeah. you go into more details? Uh, yeah, I can. So, so basically, the, Wu, the Wuhan, the nearest living ancestor of SARS-CoV-2 is a viral sequence that the Wuhan lab had had in the according to them, their freezer for seven years, right? And they've done nothing with. This sequence came from a cave, or a mine rather, where people have been working who died of virus infections, right? So, so they had a strong reason to look into that virus sequence. And that is the closest relative to uh, COVID-19. And what, what happens is that the Xu, Xu, her pronunciation apparently is Xu. And, and so she, what she does is they publish one of the very first viral sequences of this um, virus. So like three papers come out in three days, all of it saying this is the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They come out, you know, Nature and, and a couple of other venues. Yeah. And her paper makes no reference to this long-standing sequence that they'd had in her lab, right? Zero reference. They, they instead say they'd taken a sample from their freezer and they've, and they've sequenced it and they have, this is the nearest living relative, right? And that, when they've done that, of course, it is now the nearest living relative, but it obscures the fact that for seven years they'd had another virus which basically came from the same tube, right? They are the same, they are the same, actually the same thing. But it looks like, you know, when you go searching the DNA databases, it makes it look like this virus has just been with us since December. It really mm -hmm. hasn't. It's been sitting in their lab, supposedly unresearched, right? So the question is, what were they doing with this viral sequence for seven years that kills, that may have killed three miners back in 2013, in which they flagged up at the time as being of 
serious research interest and then they supposedly left it in the freezer and did nothing with it for seven years. Well, how, right? how did you come about really that? Good question. How did you come up with that information? That is just fascinating. Uh, you know, we came across, there's a preprint written by a doctor and, and he, his name is Dean Binkston. And uh, so, so I read this preprint and I thought, you know, it's slightly eccentrically written, but, but the basic, <laughs> the basic premise of the thing is, is true. And he's now improved the text or whatever. So it's a little, it's easier to understand, but they took me a couple of reads through to realize, to realize that he really had a serious point here, that, that the, the lab already had this sequence. And instead of saying, instead of basically, they took this, a sample from the same tube and they sequenced the whole genome. So what they had from predated, predating this pandemic was a smaller sequence. So, so they sequenced the rest of the genome, but instead of what, what a normal virologist would do, is they would say, say we sequence this, this sample, we now have the whole virus, and it's called the old sequence name, right? The, the stuff from the tube from seven years ago, which they published two papers on, by the way, and also mm -hmm. uploaded to a database under the name BTCOV4991, right? So it was already in the published literature. It's already in the databases. It's already been called that as a perfectly sensible name. But when they sequence it and put it in their nature paper, they give it a new name, right? And giving it a new name basically obscures the old history. And they don't even acknowledge that it came from the same tube, which they now have been forced to acknowledge, that it came from the same tube and and is the same virus, right? The sequence identity between the two is 100%, right? So wow. if there were one base pair different, you could, you could maybe make a scientific argument that we should give them a different name, but there's no difference between them whatsoever. It's the same virus from the same tube, collected from the same place, the mine where the, where, where the miners died, right? So seeming, according to medical reports, from a viral infection of pneumonia. Wow. So that is just incredible because it leads uh, to an enormous amount of evidence supporting the thesis this was leaked from the lab yeah. because it's been around for seven years, seven years. It just yeah. didn't appear spontaneously. So, I mean, this information has got to get out. I mean, this is solid evidence and it's published literature. Well, it is, it is, yeah, the 100% the identity, I mean, it is and it isn't. You know, they've done their best to obscure this. So, so there are three papers that come out, right? The, the three papers within three days that come out are really very interesting because you've got Shu's paper, which basically pretends that this 4991 sequence never existed. They've forgotten all about it, right? That would be the interpretation of reading their paper. If they, if they either they don't read their own papers or they've forgotten all about it or they've done something really weird. So then there's another paper that comes out and that says 4991 is the nearest living relative and it comes from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? So, 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 so that's paper number two. The third sequence paper that comes out basically does this huge phylogenetic analysis of, um, of, the, of the virus, right? It's got a sequence. They do this very complicated phylogenetic analysis and fail to mention anywhere that the nearest living relative is 4991 and has already been sequenced and, and, and is held in the Wuhan lab, right? 
So they look at all these different parts of the genome. They do the whole genome. They do, they do every kind of analysis. And they, as far as I can see, deliberately overlook the existence of this 4991. Right? So you've got two people trying to overlook it. And one lab, probably the naive lab, just says, hey, look, this comes from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It, what, what is the naive lab? Is that based in China or U.S.? Yeah, it's in China. It's in China. Yeah. That is just surprising because you think there would be a strong recommendation, and that's probably the incorrect term for sure, uh, <laughs> from the Chinese government to suppress that information. If you're not on board, you're not going to be around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, information flows imperfectly. You know, we, we don't fully know what, what, uh, what could have happened, right? It's possible to anticipate or, uh, you know, guess out a few scenarios. You know, there's all sorts of possibilities, like there's lab rivalries, mm-hmm. you know, there's simple naivety, there is the central government not knowing the significance of this, of this mm-hmm. sequence, right? They may not know that. They, they, you know, at that time, we don't think that they were censoring the scientific information that was coming out. And maybe they took them a while to figure out that actually the Wuhan lab was a possible source. But what's really interesting is, you know, everybody who sequenced, there was a bunch of labs that sequenced the virus around the same time. Right? Which, which virus? The virus from the mind? The, from the, no, the, 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 the uh, SARS-CoV-2, okay. Okay. right? And we're talking about January, February. Okay. Uh, who sequenced it at the same time, and some just put it in the database, and some published a paper, and, and other people no doubt had their own private sequences and never did anything with it. And they, um, they all would have searched in the database for this four, and come up with this 4991 sequence from the Shu lab, right? They all would have done that. And, you know, like it's, what you've got to imagine is, they just get on the phone and they say they phone the Wuhan Institute of Virology and say, look, you, you, the virus is outbroken in your town, just down the road from you, walking distance, and you, you are the keepers of the nearest known viral sequence. Have you had a lab accident? Right? You can imagine dozens of labs phoning them up and say, have you had a lab accident? And phoning all kinds of people in the Chinese government and saying, look, probably they had a lab accident. <clears throat> yeah, so your, your impression is that com- those conversations most likely occurred. Oh, they have to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is, that, this information, is this, I've not seen this previously. Are you the first one to uncover this in the, the United States or? Well, we have, we've done our own, there are other people on parallel, parallel but slightly different tracks, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen bits of this discussed, but not all of it put together. Yeah, to me, that seems some of the most compelling evidence in support of it being leaked. I mean, I don't, I mean, do you have any other evidence you think is stronger? Other than the whole historical I mean, perspective we've reviewed? I mean, this is, you know, what, what I'm offering is evidence of a cover-up, mm-hmm. right? And we don't know exactly what they were covering up, right? They could have been covering up something a little different, right? But, but, but the very obvious thing to be covering up is simply that you were researching a virus that looks uncomfortably like uh, SARS-CoV-2. 
And you're, you're, you're suggesting that from the studies you review that they're basically identical SARS-CoV-2 and this virus isolated from well, the Well, they are the, they are the closest living relatives. So, so like, so do they have, so they have the ACE2 receptor? Or they got the, no, the, we only have a partial sequence, right? Okay. So this, we don't have the whole genome of this original sample. They only provided a sequence of 370 base pairs, but it is 98.7% identical. Right? And, That's and four nucleotides in, in the 370 base pairs. Yeah, and how many base pairs are there in the, in the SARS-CoV-2? Is it like 23,000, 24,000? The whole one is nearly 30,000. 30,000, yeah. So, yeah, so that's like 1%. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're talking about the 1% level. But this is, you do have to qualify this a little bit. This is considered the most conserved part of the genome. Okay. okay. Right? So it doesn't necessarily extrapolate for the whole thing. But what, okay. what, is quite, what is quite possible is that that sample comes from something that is way closer than anything we've been told about so far. Yeah, it's definitely an ancestor. It's definitely in a lineage. And they, they, could, they, could, they could have done... Uh, research after that, that isolate to uh, and to put gain of function research to to make it even more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly the kind of thing that could have happened. Yeah, yeah. So, gosh. So, uh, you know, we talked about passaging with, and within reference to the ACE two receptors, but I believe this has an HIV envelope protein in there, which which would be another one. And then there's speculation that uh, the head of the Department of Chemistry from uh, uh, Harvard, who was arrested, and he's an expert in uh, nanotechnology, which many believe was applied to this virus, so it increases its its transmissibility through the air. So, do you have any speculation uh, as to how those uh, characteristics got integrated into SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, we have not looked into any HIV-like sequences. That's something we haven't done. But they're there. They're clearly there. Yeah, yeah. That, that may be. And that we just we yeah. just have nothing novel to offer on that. Yeah, GP, I think it's GP141, it's, mm. which should increase the transmissibility. I mean, which suggests a gain-of-function research. I mean, how else is it going to get there? It doesn't get there spontaneously. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts as a virologist how it got there? No, I, I really wouldn't like to say. I mean, it would just okay. be speculation. Okay. All right. So, wow, that was really interesting. Uh, wasn't expecting that. It wasn't in your paper, so it was, uh, it was good. So any other comments you'd like to share with us or insights that, uh, you know, conclusions you've reached after investigating this? Well, you know, I mean, the, I mean, it's more the big picture thing of, you know, do you really want to be spending, you know, public money, public money, you know, all this is being, all these different models of public health are being leveraged off, you know, we, we talk about how it's Gates's money and whatever, but, but, you know, ultimately it's public money that's being mm -hmm. spent, right? I mean, much of that money is just Gates tax breaks. And so, so like, you know, the question is, you know, what do we spend our public health money on? Do we target these individual diseases and make, you know, New England Biolabs and the Gates Foundation's investors rich, or do we invest in public health in a sense that benefits everybody? You know, like you say, prevention and nutrition and, you know, also, 
the big issue, the big issue too that we haven't really touched on is what, uh, you know, why are we blaming the wildlife trade here, right? This is a really important question to ask because the wildlife, Peter Daszak is the head of the, the EcoHealth Alliance. He's been in all the media, right? He's been on Democracy Now!, the New York Times, the New Scientist, uh, sorry, Scientific American, Science Magazine, all these different outlets. 60 right? minutes, 60 minutes. Basically ubiquitous, right? Mm -hmm. Blaming the wildlife trade, right? Saying categorically it's not allowed escape. Well, he is an interested party, right? His nonprofit is funding this research, right? The media cannot go and ask the person who is funding it whether it came from their lab or not. That's ridiculous. <laughs> But, but that's what they're doing, and they're treating us like idiots. But, but, but the question is, why is he blaming the wildlife trade, right? When many of these virus epidemic incidents originate in, you know, basically destroying rainforests, logging, building roads into these remote areas and so forth, and then people catch Ebola virus because their communities are disrupted and because animals are fleeing the destruction in the forest, right? Now, it turns out that his EcoHealth Alliance is in partnership with the palm oil industry, right? Mm. So the palm oil industry are part of the, the model, right? To blame, basically, they're, they're supporting the EcoHealth Alliance to, to share an understanding of the origins of this pandemic that basically whitewashes the destruction of the rainforest that we, many people believe, is one of the important causes of all this, right? There's plenty of examples of, of damage to rainforest and rainforest communities, human and animal, that have then resulted in virus spills and virus outbreaks from the wild, right? There's a whole bunch of examples and they are not being talked about on CNN. They're not being talked about in, in, on, in many of these outlets. He's steering the story to this wildlife trade, right? Basically the little guys in all this and, and then reaping the benefits with all his grants from, from the NIH and so forth. Yeah, well, <clears throat> or maybe the, the industry that designed this, uh, as some people call it a plandemic or scamdemic, uh, and engineered it to uh, essentially produce a financial collapse. I mean, the, I mean, what they're doing in the economy is just, it's, it's historical. It's never been done in the history of the world to in, inflate the, uh, you know, a, an economy of the wealthiest country in the world by so much. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. Uh, so uh, yes, there's hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in case of, of Gates, but they're talking trillions and trillions of dollars that are literally displacing slash destroying large segments of the economy, uh, permanently changing it forever. So, uh, and shifting assets around to people who are very, very wealthy. So, uh, there, you know, it's, it's easy to understand how some of these, uh, uh, stories can be used as a cover to hide what's going on for the ultimate goal, what appears to be in, in using this as a cover. Well, pe people who speculate benefit from fluctuations, right? I, I won't go so far as a pandemic and anything like that, but people who speculate, you know, the Goldman Sachs of this world, mm -hmm. the people whose money is in the stock exchange and so forth, they benefit from, from fluctuations in the market, 
because they anticipate them and they have positions to to defend themselves and they know that they can buy up stuff cheaply and so forth when the when the markets hit the bottom so they plan for all well, this well that, that's if it was a free market but it's been manipulated to to hyperbolic standards with the federal the fed and you know this you can't do it without intervention from the governments so i mean if if it would if they didn't do that then we'd have natural consequences then yeah that that, that would be a story but this is this has to do with you know government intervention which which suggests a much higher order of of uh involvement i guess yeah i mean i i'm i'm you know i'm very much interested in the politics of all this but i'm not a financial person you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so i'm the wrong person to ask yeah yeah it's just I mean, it has to be placed in the proper context, but you know, this, there's one thing is the science and, and it's really important to focus on that to understand the origins. Uh, but then it's interesting to speculate as to why that may have occurred because it, and I think probably one of the best ways to do that is observe the evidence to look at what's happened and try to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And if you do, you can, I think, create a pretty cohesive theory. I mean, we find, I mean, we find, you know, we do, you probably follow our website a little bit, you know, and we, you know, we find that science, if you, if you understand the science well enough, it really helps you to understand who's lying and what about right, what right. story they're telling. Right. And so when you, when you understand that part, you've got a really strong anchor to base an analysis of what's really going on in the bigger picture. Right. You know, if you can see that, a very obvious thing, the possibility here is a lab escape, and then you've got one or a few people wandering around the media saying, a lab escape is an impossibility, it never happened, there's no chance of it at all. You know that they're not speaking science, right? That they have some kind of ax to grind, and then you see who else repeats the message and who supports them and who doesn't, and so forth. Well, I think eventually it's all gonna come out, and uh... There, are, I, I'm confident there's going to be efforts to shut these labs down. There, there's, I believe, five or six hundred BSL three labs alone in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so the potential, I mean, that which is a relatively recent uh, occurrence. I mean, they we didn't have this many labs before. I mean, there's no re doesn't seem to be any ostensible reason to have that many labs and that type expose the country and the world to that type of potential threat from these. It, what appears to be almost inevitable escapes. Well, well, escapes at some level probably are inevitable, right? And and you've got you know you've got naturally occurring pandemics which have always happened, mm -hmm. but then you've got all this BSL three and BSL four lab research that is being directed towards predicting and preparing and so forth. But these people have not managed to predict anything so far. Right. What, what they've done is done these incredibly dangerous experiments and then find out that the next virus comes from somewhere that they didn't anticipate or certainly didn't warn us about. And, and so, so it's really unclear what is really the research value. This Mark Lipsitch has written really nice stuff about whether this research is basically hyper reductionistic virological research about, you know, it will be caused by a particular spike with a, on a particular virus and in a particular uh, way about how much information that really generates because 
Well, if you did the same experiments on slightly different viruses, you would get different answers. And that's what ends up being the one that causes the pandemic. So like this research is not really predictive, but, but if, if enough virologists get together and say that this is how we predict the next pandemic, what is a government to do, right? If that's what they all say, that's how we should do it, then, then who's going to contradict them? And this is reductionistic, it costs huge amounts of money, of taxpayer dollars and so forth. But, you know, they, there's no, and there's, there's, you know, so you've got all these, I'm going to end up being incoherent here, but you've got all these self-interested scientists saying we need to do more research, but it's really questionable as to whether their reductionistic model of predicting stuff and using these BSL free labs and so forth, it will ever deliver anything. Do, do you, what do you believe is the incentive for that behavior? Is it just self-serving with respect to maintaining their current jobs? Yeah, yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, so, which is not unnecessarily unethical behavior. I mean, you want to continue gainful employment. So, you know, why not push uh, an agenda that's going to keep you employed, even though it doesn't serve the public good necessarily? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the problem with science today, right? Is that, you know, you've got half a dozen different pathways that virology could take to, to prepare and prevent us uh, from, from having these pandemics. And what the path that ends up being taken is the one that's most profitable for the people themselves, but also all the satellite interests that exist, right? You know, the vaccine people and the treatment people and the, the reagent labs and the chemical industry and the, so forth. So like you've got all this kind of constellation of interests that, that converges on a particular solution which is not the solution with the most scientific or public health merit. Yeah. Well, lots of good things to think about. Any, any other comments you'd like to share with us? Probably that will do. All right, well, that's good. I mean, I really uh, I deeply appreciate your taking your expertise and time and delving into this and uncovering this information that really lends some very scientific, credible support to I guess, debunk the proposed conventional media uh, hypothesis that this was zoonotically transmitted just from bats alone and was not due to a lab leak. I mean, the evidence just seems to be overwhelmingly against that. So, and you're maybe adding some of the few nails in the coffin to this one. So I appreciate all your efforts and everything you do. So if people want to know more about you, maybe you can tell us your website name so people can go there because you write articles on a regular basis. Yeah, so, so we write uh, at independentsciencenews.org and, uh, and we're, our nonprofit is the Bioscience Resource Project. And we'll do some more stuff on the, on the virus for sure. Okay, well, maybe we'll have you back if you have some more breakthroughs like this. It's great. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for everything you're doing. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for asking.